companions. We help you discover your many layers. You peel your car, you wake up, with fresh eyes. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. I'm Rachel Uwa, and I'm from the U.S. originally, but I've been living in Berlin almost 18 years. And um, I originally came to Berlin um, after Bush was in office, and I didn't really believe in the politics of his administration, and I wanted to escape, so I um, so I came to Berlin, and I have in the past been working in audio and then I did some some work in visual effects and then I got into interactive technology and coding and things and then I as I was learning I started to kind of get involved with organizations who also design workshops for people so then I started to help to lead workshops and then organize workshops and design workshops and I have been doing that for many years so oh I guess I would also add I started my own school in 2014 called School of Machines Making and Make Believe. So that has been a thing that I've mostly been focused on for the last seven-ish years. And I, I think I'm basically with that designing courses that hover around art, technology, design, and human connection and getting people to think critically about technology, but also using technology as a way to reflect on ourselves and society and to learn more um, I don't know if holistically is the word. I feel like that's a bit of a hippie word, but you know, it's just like, there's more than just, okay, download the software, let's begin learning or whatever. It's like, there's, so it, yeah, a lot of things are involved in that, but that's, I guess, me in a nutshell. We've known each other for a number of years now, but I don't think I've actually really heard your full story. <laughs> oh, really? oh. I, left a lot of the, I left a lot of bad parts out. <laughs> there's still more, but yeah, I mean, that's just the gist, so. Um, but how interesting, like I didn't know that you left because of Bush, Bush's administration. Can you sort of, shall we backtrack a little bit to that? Like what was the situation back then? What was your sort of life context at that point? Were you, were you studying in audiovisual or were you already starting to work? And then what made you decide on this like rather big, you know, life decision to move? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so well, at the time I was working in audio engineering and I studied it in school. I mean, I studied several things in school. It was a time when you could kind of jump around and study different things. So uh, I started, started off with like journalism, photojournalism, and, um, and then got into social work and then started to get into like philosophy and design. And then I ended up um, studying audio engineering because I loved music or I still love music, but I realized the power of it because it makes you laugh and cry and it can take you, it's like a time machine. It can make you like, you know, go back to childhood or some specific moment when you heard a song and feel that same thing. So I think it's like some magical vehicle somehow. And um, so, yeah, so I wanted to be a part of that, but at the time I didn't feel like being a musician is the way for me. So I thought, okay, but I want to be involved in music. So I'm going to study audio engineering. And I did that in Chicago and then and then I, I, I think it's like with a thing with like, I get like really um, kind of obsessed with things, you know, it's like, you, you don't want to just like learn a thing, but just like, you want to learn everything around it. So I was at the time also learning circuit design and equipment repair and working with, um, with an audio, a microphone amplifier manufacturer and he was teaching circuit design. And so I had like many different jobs in audio and I was also part of the audio engineering society and, and I was attending the microphone um, committees uh, events because I wanted to design microphones. So this is like the story that I had for myself at the time. And so I was like completely immersed in the audio world and and then there was a conference in um, Amsterdam, the Audio Engineering Society conference in Amsterdam that I was going to attend. And it was gonna be my first time in Europe. And it was happened to be that my plane was on the day that the US started bombing Iraq in 2003. And so it was like on the monitors in the um, airport, they were showing the beginnings of the bombings and things. and. And then if you looked around the airport, though, everybody was like enjoying themselves or like, oh, we're going and flying internationally. How exciting. People were drinking, laughing. And I was like, 
what the hell is going on? I don't understand. Like, I can't believe these people, you know? So then I was just like, like, I went to the bathroom and I was just sitting on the floor and crying. And then one of the stewardesses was like, are you okay? Can I help you? And then I was just like, I don't know, you know? And so that kind of kicked it off. And then as I was in Europe for the first time, I was traveling and then and every city there was a, or like major cities, there were protests against the US. And so that was a really um, eye-opening experience. And then when I got back home, the people that I was working for were really conservative. And so then they were of course on the side of the government and feeling very scared, I guess, because of 9-11 and believing that what the US was doing actually had some, um, some reasoning behind it. But so I had to basically quit all my jobs because I was like, I can't work for conservative. Well, I called them conservative idiots at the time. So, but, um, but yeah, so then that was crazy because, you know, I had dedicated many years to audio, you know, and I was in love with audio for many reasons. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, I can't work here anymore. I can't be in this space anymore. And it was like, leaving a career for my, I guess, political beliefs, which seemed super strange at the time. But then I thought, well, this is what you have to do, I guess, if you have ideals, you know? And so, um, and so yeah, then eventually I uh, found a job in Berlin and I, I went there. And I, th my, I think my, th my thinking at the time was, I'm ashamed of the US right now and Germans, are ashamed of their history and so it would be a nice fit you know it's so like all of this like trying to deal with our shame kind of scenario I thought that would be like a good environment um my goodness yeah. that is so interesting that you found the connection and deliberately chose Berlin because of that how how did it feel as an American and also how does it feel um, as an American now how did it thunder out of my control nature um, because well we've recent events with Afghanistan and I just feel like it's so complex you know this entire situation in the Middle East and there are private interests there are economic interests and there are things that are political but it's not just purely political it's business mm -hmm. and it's businessmen who are involved and you know the the people who are sponsoring these campaigns are are also the ones who have a stake in it and pushing for political agenda and you know like i guess maybe this is a good time to digress a little bit and and talk about this current situation in relation to the iraq situation where where do we you know position ourselves as citizens you know how much how much power do we even have when you are a citizen of a country, but you you are paying the taxes, but you are not necessarily able to make or contribute to some of these bigger decisions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the thing is, I think either way, it's painful. And I think the reality is that originally the motivation for going to Afghanistan isn't really, it wasn't humanitarian aid, you know, it was, that was not the purpose. And so, I feel like it's just really complicated in that regard, you know, because like technically they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But then um, I find it difficult these days when I see, you know, like Michael Moore, for example, I used to really appreciate Michael Moore because he was one of the few people who would stand up against uh, the Bush administration back in the day uh, around 9-11 times. And, um, but, you know, recently I saw following him on social media and I saw that he was like, yeah, Biden, get out of Afghanistan. Finally, we're, you know, we're going to be um, not supporting war. And, you know, I mean, normally I would be a person I'm not not supporting war. You know, I mean, I believe in I don't believe in war. But at the same time, it's 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 cr created another chaos in the country. And so it can't be just so easy to say, yay, we don't believe, we believe in peace and not war and now we're gone and then end of story. It's like, you know, people have to kind of understand it's a little bit more complicated than that and look at the situation for what it is. And then, and hopefully other governments will also start to step in, you know? I mean, I don't really have high hopes that the US are people of or, you know, like the government anyway, because the government is always different than the people, but I don't think the government generally does the right thing in almost any, you know, situation. So, so I feel, I feel like it's, yeah, it's really difficult to know that 
the people who are supposedly, who we've been told all our lives are supposed to do the right thing are not, you know, and I think, I just hope that it becomes more and more clear to everybody, you know, that everybody would start to take a look at their governments and realize, oh, actually, they're not looking out for us, for the, for the regular, you know, um, humans who, who are in their territory and for what we want. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I wish that would change, but I, I also feel a bit powerless to be honest. And so I think for me, focusing on education and the little that I can do and trying to talk about things openly and creating a space for us to all get into this same headspace so we can figure out what possible solutions could be, even if it's on just a personal individual mental health scale, you know, I mean, that's enough. I think it's like, we need everybody to, to understand the minimum what's going on. And I feel like even that is the form of activism. It doesn't have to be protesting in the streets, but it can be just seeing what's going on and understanding it and understanding like that it's much more complicated than what the news is going to, uh, you know, portray. Yeah, definitely. And on that, well, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the situation of Afghanistan and in the historical political context, but I kind of want to just touch, uh, touch on it just on the more individual perspective. So, um, when I was in France, I was working with um, asylum seekers, most of them kind of minors. So there were a couple of them who uh, who were from Afghanistan. So when that happened, um, I reached out to them and I was trying to help them whichever ways that I could. And um, so it's been like many weeks of trying to help them, try, trying to get the right information from them to be able to translate documents into English and to be able to send emails out and all of that. And the situation on the ground was that it's really difficult, you know, it's it's a privilege to be able to even have a passport there. And it's a privilege to be able to speak a language that is not just their native language. And the kind of things that are demanded and asked to be on the evacuation list, you needed to be, you know, in the kind of international jobs to be able to have the right documents for it. And the situation on the ground was that if you had family members or you yourself worked in journalism, activism, or with the National Afghan military um, or the National Security Police, then you are targeted by the Taliban. And even if your family members died during that period by the Taliban, when they started taking over, your house was like bombed. <laughs> they were hunting you down and, and shooting like kids died along the way um, from like families or friends and it's just such a devastating situation and I'm all the way at the other end of the world like in Singapore trying to figure out what is going on so that I can type out a, a coherent narrative and I, I couldn't even I couldn't do much because they didn't have the necessary documents or information like what can you do when everything has been bombed you know like your, your house is in ashes all the documents are there they don't have the passports they don't read or write you know it's it's a privilege to even be literate and even if they have family members or they themselves have worked for American military um, foreign military the situation was like with the with the US side the, the applications were so complicated it, it was almost impossible to be able to submit something on the UK, French side, and some other countries, it seemed a bit better. Like on the ground, it feels like there were several different decision makers. There was there was on the political side, like whatever that they said to international media that they will try and evacuate. I don't know how true that translates to what they're working on the ground. It feels like it's very split. There are like, you know, many, maybe ministers or administrators that are trying to help as many people as possible. But then also it feels like they are not really trying that hard to help people it feels like it's split according to the individuals working and then on the ground the military troops that are there um, are trying to collect as many people as possible but for the americans it seemed like a different story it just felt like there were so many different perspectives and and different agendas and it was like the place was full the airport was full um, it was so difficult to get on the list you had to call or something just to be able to get a meeting to be on the list and then they will look through your documents and it was just there was just no reply from you know all these emails that I sent and mm -hmm. fair enough for some they didn't have the right documents for it um, and, and mind you these are families that are in imme immediate danger they are they are actively being hunted and mm -hmm. you know their houses have been targeted um, and they are kind of on the run and it was just like the, the kind of hopelessness like when I'm having these conversations with my friends it kind of went from 
um, I'm sensing from them like shock and then anxiety, lots of mixed feelings, and then slowly just despair, devastation, hopelessness. And it got to a point where there was nothing more I could do. Like, you know, there, was, there wasn't any more email I could send. There, there, I didn't have the right documents. Just getting the right information and, and getting some documents, it took like one or two weeks or, or maybe even three weeks. And then once we start sending out, it was kind of too late. And, and it was really disappointing towards the last week. Like almost everyone evacuated on Friday while there, there was still the weekend. And over the weekend, I think it was mostly just American flights. And they were, it feels like their parties really just their own people rather than the Afghans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tried asking around and it just felt like a situation where we were leaving people to die. Mm-hmm. I mean... Politically, I don't feel like I'm in the right position to say what is right or wrong. Uh, like when I was in London and doing some participatory artwork, I, I remember that, that I, ha- I had a conversation with this guy and um, he was from Africa and I think he he's a bit of an extremist. Well, actually not really a bit. He's quite an extremist, like, you know, almost like the opposite end of me. And he was telling me that um, he really hated Westerners and that, you know, everything that um, was on Western media, it's propaganda and everything was fake. And that back then I did an exhibition um, that was with, you know, like a short film that I made with my Syrian friend talking about the Syrian refugee crisis back then. And he was talking in a video about how um, the situation in Syria was and, and like President Assad's like involvement in all of the atrocities. And this guy was telling me that this president was, you know, trying to do his best for the country and for the people and that all the genocide and everything that they were seeing on the news, it's Western propaganda. And he didn't even believe what my friend was saying when he is a Syrian from that place, from that country who has escaped and was telling his story. And then it made me realize, you know, his perspective, I spent two hours really trying to (laughs) talk to him and understand his perspective. And I realized, right, if you are if you're exposed to all these YouTube videos, contents that is of these kind of extremist narratives and views, it's very easy to understand where that's coming from because there is so much anger, you know, that these Westerners came to my land, colonized us, took our resources away, did business and exploited us and and we need to, we need to chase them out. And I think there was a lot of that anger that came from that, which then I think manifested into all these different extremist groups. And maybe there are other reasons out there that, you know, we don't know of because it's not like outright on the media. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, it's trying to process all that is happening in the world. And I feel like from back then, Syrian refugee crisis or even like the 9-11 attacks when I was like really young and, and, and now with all of these situations and politics I guess then the question is like, you know, it's very difficult to try and understand where is maybe there is a lot of selfishness, there is a lot of greed involved, but what do we as, you know, people, <laughs> citizens of the world as one like shared humanity make of this situation? And I felt being in Singapore where everything is so safe and comfortable and just, I felt so disjointed where everyone just seems so comfortable and they can afford to, not care about the situation. For them, it's just news. It's just news that, oh, it's sad that that happened. And then they forget about it and that's it. And we go on with our, you know, daily lives. And I I just felt like I was living in a different reality. I was hearing about, you know, my friend's family, like people are dying and I'm on WhatsApp, you know, trying to get information and things are urgent there. And I'm trying to live my life here and I've got my work and I just feel like I was split between spaces. And I realized I, I didn't really have people to talk to who, who would understand this because my experiences are so different from, everyone else in the country and I don't it it just feels like I I don't even have the right people here that I could talk to about something like this Mm -hmm. and it makes me think like this is not going to end just like that you know it's not that now that the military have all evacuated it doesn't mean that the situation ends there there might be less media attention but things are still happening but what do we do as individuals then like how do we prepare ourselves emotionally for all of these situations that's happening and and also keeping in mind that with the climate crisis we're seeing news of bushfires wildfires and floods and you know all these destruction people are losing their homes there this is the new normal <laughs> and what do we make of this situation what does solidarity mean in a time like now that we're living in this world mm-hmm. 
Well, those are big, uh, those are big questions. <laughs> and also, I mean, thank you for also even, I mean, I know I noticed you were, uh, yeah, really trying to kind of get some reaction from people and some like some information for people and things. And I know it's really, uh, I mean, it's commendable that you even tried and, and I know it's really difficult, um, especially when it doesn't seem like other people are caring, you know, I mean, that's like the huge, the biggest thing. It's almost like gaslighting. Like you're like, uh, am I perceiving this wrong? Because why, you know, it's like, did something happen that I don't know about and everybody knows it, but me, because why am I the only one um, giving a damn? So, so I feel like, um, yeah, mental health, mental, I mean, like, it's difficult. It's difficult. And I think like part of the thing that happens with me, I, I notice is that I will be really upset about something to then the point of like first anger and then just kind of despair, as you said, and then um, something else will happen where I realize, okay, I need to put my efforts here. Like I can be useful here. Like I can make um, people aware about things here. And then it just, it's kind of a cycle. It's like, you know, that like the attention focus that we have is, is this kind of broad. And then, so we, we're seeing things, we're being um, upset and trying to think of ways to change them. And then inevitably feeling like, okay, I can't do something here, but wait, I can do something here and something should be done here. Let me do something here. And then, and then, and then until your attention sways again and it's like, okay, well, there's that thing. And I mean, I, I think at the very least, again, it's like, understand like that we take in this information about how humans behave in the world so we're not naive in thinking that governments are there to support the people and people to do the right thing media is there to just inform people of what's happening and that you know like all of these structures are really um they're really messed up and especially with journalism because i mean i had studied journalism at the beginning and i had I believed in the integrity of it. And now I feel like that is all gone for the most part. And I mean, yeah, there are still good people trying to do good things and inform people, but there's so much fake news and people believing just lies. And I mean, I, I think I basically have this, I've had this for many years, this uh, belief that we've all been told different lies. And so this is how these things happen. It's like, we started off, like maybe our families just showed us different things or we heard different things and so now here we are and we're all kind of have a lot of misinformation and and yeah I think that really the only thing we can do is call people on it when we are faced with them right in front of us you know I mean ideally not on social social media it's going to be futile you know because there's always going to be trolls but if you're standing in front of a person you're having a discussion and they are saying some things that are just clearly not true. It's like making them question that and like call them on it and have a discussion about it because yeah, then that's like, at least you plant the seed of like, hey, what you're saying might not be true, hopefully. And then I feel like that's all we can really do in a way, which is, I know it's just like, so feels so like nothing, you know, it feels so tiny. But on the other hand, I feel like it's the same thing I think about, you know, when I feel, when I see adults that are jerks and I'm like, how did this person go through their entire life? Did nobody ever call them on their shit? Like what's going on with that? And I feel like, yeah, it's like, we need to call people on the things that are not quite right and have a discussion about it and, um, and then get them to understand that that, that might not be completely true and hopefully they will start to question it. And I feel like that's the thing we need to reach everyone. It's almost like we need to reach every human on earth one-on-one, -on -one, which is like obviously a huge daunting task and no one person can do that whole thing. So that's why I think coalitions, communities, community building, coalition building is really important because you get people on the same page on a certain um, topic in the world. And then you do what you can to share that knowledge with others. And when it doesn't work, you are there to support each other and, um, and help keep each other mentally stable because it's definitely challenging on that front. Uh, and, and really, I mean, the reality is we're only as good as our health and our mental health. And if we let that fail us, then we're nothing. And so each time 
when faced with these traumas of the world that we can't really do very much about, it's like, I think it's important to be angry and important to recognize what's going on that's that's wrong, but then also to have a boundary to not let it break you, you know, because really what we need are, we need to be like, have some stamina uh, and um, the ability to recognize where we need to put our energy in order to have a positive outcome in the end, you know, because like we all want to make help make positive change before we die. And I don't think for me, I mean, for sure, it's that feeling is not going to end. Right. It's like, so that's, it's almost like, this is our mission. We're like, in a way, little missionaries. And we're like, this is, we're trying to like find ways to do good in the world. And we have to not forget that. So even though we kind of get confronted with these painful things and, um, it's like they're all kind of like feeding our knowledge and understanding and ability to understand the world for what it is and humans for what they are. And, but we still have to kind of go and move forward. So I feel like that's, and that's like a daily process, you know, it's not even like, oh, you know, this happens over a period of a month or something. It's like every day is like constantly faced with the things and kind of like having to pull back, recharge, find a way to make some kind of impact. And it's like, yeah, it's a daily it's a daily process. So yeah, Tabby. <laughs> you know, for me, I think this is activism. This is the real activism for me, like really putting the time and the energy to open up these spaces for conversations and to try and change mindsets and perspectives one by one. And maybe it's us who needs changing. I don't know. Sometimes it's you know, finding a bit of that neutrality or using empathy to understand where the other person is coming from so that you can also understand where the pain is from. But what I'm hearing here is also the ability to hold conflict. And I think one of the starkest contrasts I felt since coming back to Singapore was, um, I think in Asian cultures, it tends to be more non-confrontational. So then conflict is always seen as something that is bad. And on on the topic of activism, it feels like... (laughs) you know, you shouldn't be angry all the time or, you know, you should you should maintain your calm. So then when something agitates you, you should go back and meditate. And for me, it's kind of like, must we be this passive? Like, okay, I understand that that thought process where, right, maybe, you know, like having more neutrality or peace or calmness and like that kind of meditative state, it's, it's better for the world in general in terms of the energy. But then also without the kind of activism like Black Lives Matter and these kind of conversations that really pushed these agenda forward and opened up these conversations in which, you know, otherwise people of privilege wouldn't realize um, about these things that they needed to be educated on, we wouldn't have the progress that we have now. And I feel like there's something in there about, about education, not just, you know, talking about like let's educate the young or whatever like it's too late for the older people I mean I think that's bullshit it's like you know how do we open up the kind of daily education and lifelong learning which is essentially what your school is about in in terms of being able to hold space for such conflict but in a way that is empowering in a way that is constructive in a way that allows us to be able to talk about these differences or open up a a constructive conversation and this is really difficult because you know when you have your beliefs and your point of view and when someone says something like I don't know super sexist or whatever there there is always anger that surfaces but the the key is like how do you how do you not continue a conversation in a judgmental way but try and with as much empathy as possible open up a space to try and understand where the other person is coming from and then to to have a, a productive conversation on that Well, I think actually it has to do with recognizing that it starts with us as humans and what is, and so questioning the human experience, what does the human experience in their lives and what leads them to later making good or bad decisions, you know, and a lot of, I mean, I was listening to a comedian the other day. I think I listen to a lot of comedy actually, because I feel like, because, because it's everything feels so heavy and it's like, sometimes you just need to laugh, but it was like this one comedian, he was saying something about Oh, you want to, if anybody wants to know what their troubles are, I could probably tell you, and I've had a lot of therapy, basically everything boils down to childhood and everybody, you know, like all the, all the trauma from there. I mean, it was funny. You had to be there because there's like some funny stories about his childhood, but, um, 
But that's true, though. In fact, it's actually a truth that he said through this comedy. And um, and so one of the things that we're doing at School Machines, for example, is this thing called Serial Party. And so it started in um, in physical space where there would be a festival, like a yearly festival, for example, Transmediala in Berlin, which is kind of an art tech culture festival or um, or Pictoplasma, which is like one of my, um, well, the my favorite character design festival that happens in Berlin. So we have partner with them on occasion. And so basically it's like um, when there are crowds of people to do this thing called serial party where a small group of people come in like five, it's like in physical space, it was like five minutes, five strangers and a bowl of cereal. That was like the tagline, but like we started to do them online since the pandemic and the idea is basically to get people to come together in small groups and talk about personal things. And so the first one we had done this, uh, on online was called, please don't put your dick in my face. And the thing that I wanted people to do was to talk about why, how the challenges of intimacy, you know? And so like, even in a relationship where someone is there that you supposedly love, you supposedly love each other, but you can't say, something important that needs to be said, you know, and why is that the case? And so, um, and so we, you know, people joined the call and we had these really lovely conversations. And then the idea is that for each conversation we have, we kind of see where the theme is leading next. And then we have the following serial party um, two months later will be on that next topic. So it's as if like, we're trying to get a conversation started and then see how it evolves and kind of follow that through. And so then the next one after that was called daddy issues. And the thing that uh, became clear is that almost everybody has issues with their fathers. Either they were absent, abusive, um, or, or, you know, anything in between from, from that situation. And, um, and yeah, these are things that like, that we have to, it's like our human behavior on a daily basis has to do with how we experience the world as ch children. And like our first, um, yeah, understanding of how humans relate to each other. And if we had a really bad examples, which I definitely did. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like I, in a way I'm like a walking miracle because I had so many bad examples. It was like ridiculous. I feel like I shouldn't even be here right now. And luckily, so this is why I just think that it's possible everyone can survive. Like it's possible to separate yourself from your experiences in life and to understand we are not our experiences and we are not our thoughts. And to, I don't know, I feel like that's a really important mental health tool that, um, that people can build up. But, um, but yeah, I think that the point is that the, the issues are deeper than which political party you support or don't support, you know, it's like you need people, we need to stop. Ha I mean, I, that's just how I feel anyway. I think it's like, I don't necessarily feel the strong desire to debate about politics anymore, but I'm like, what was your life like as a child? What was your experience as a human? What has impacted you in both positive and negative ways? And I feel like once we know that, then we can look at like, okay, then it makes sense that you're thinking these things because of this, or you're doing that because of that, you know what I mean? So like, so I feel like really in that way, this is why it is real individual work. Like, like activism is, is like one person at a time and not like large groups of people at a time because we all have had these different experiences and you can't just address a group of people and say like, okay, we've all had these experiences because you need to talk about them. Like you, people need to know that they're seen and that experience is recognized and, and it's put into context of the person that they've become, you know? So I almost feel like that should be like, yeah, the political party of, of everyone of, of like one-on-one -on -one or like, I don't know. So, so that's, that's what I always go back to, you know, it's like as much as I can be upset about everything that is happening in the world and every day there's a new painful scenario for sure. Um, I'm always like, okay, well, what can I do as one human? And I think it's like, start these very personal and at times painful conversations with people and give them a space to articulate 
their experiences and and start from there basically so i don't know that's that's my approach anyway as far as it goes with this participatory art like dialoguing art and this it's so it's so powerful um and i always find it difficult to explain that <laughs> When you write proposals or whatever, or like an evaluation report, like, you know, I talk to people and I talk about personal stuff. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to try, like, you know, how has a person changed or whatever, but there is so much value in just creating the space to have such personal and intimate conversations and to allow people an opportunity and, and the time and space to be able to express their lived experiences and to talk about how they feel, because it feels like it—it it feels like a privilege, you know. Not everyone has the opportunity or access to be able to talk about these things. How how was it for the participants that took part in it? Like, was it intimidating for them to be part of these conversations at the start? I mean, the thing is that they're quite, they're small groups of people. And the thing is like, we're all interested, like everyone who joined the call, for example, on daddy issues, they're like, just wanted to let it out. You know, it's like, you just want to like, um, acknowledge the situation and meet other people who also had similar things. And then just to be like, okay, what happened with fathers? You know, what happened? Um, why were, why were they so cold? Why unreachable, impossible to, um, to communicate with and all these things. And, and I think that's kind of the thing that we come together to try to figure out together what the hell just happened, you know, like, um, and to put it in perspective. And, and I think people want to do that, but, um, I think it, the thing is that I think that it's, it, it has to happen in small groups again. So it's like, you, you know, because people only will open up in very small groups. And so I think this is just the challenge. I think, you know, kind of what you just said, it's the unfortunate scenario that people don't understand the importance of this work, you know, because everybody's so busy thinking about like business and degrees and titles and whatever that they don't understand the importance of, you know, the one-on-one -on -one connection. And if, if they do, then they would probably see it as a thing you don't talk about because people don't talk about therapy and mental health, at least like you shouldn't, you know, talk about that with, you know, just people in general, you should save that for a therapist or a very specific place. And in that case, you pay someone to do that job. And then, you know, and it's like, you shouldn't bring it into your life. And so, but it impacts our entire life. So it's like, why do we have to reserve those conversations there? So I feel like actually, I mean, we've talked about this before and I think this is really the work is how do we get people with, um, or like look for the possibilities of funding when people don't even understand the importance of this work and how do we get this work to be recognized for the value that it provides and, and then get funding for it, you know? Because I mean, I think like both of us, we're doing this work and we're not getting paid for it really. You know, it's like, I don't get paid for doing these things. It's like the thing that you do because you know, it needs to be done and it's so important. And I think we couldn't even not do it if we wanted. And yet we're getting no compensation whatsoever. And it's like, so it's like, it's very unfortunate because we have to find ways to survive. And the majority of the work that we know is important to do, we're not getting the recognition and the compensation for it. And and so I think obviously it makes other people not want to take on this work either, you know, because they're also trying to survive. So, so we need to find a way to get recognition for like socially engaged art. I mean, if that's the category we would put this in, or, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? Are there other terms this, this whole thing could fall under that we can start to like slowly build up the uh, recognition of its importance or what do you think? There are so many different terms, even among like the socially engaged art category, art space. So like participatory art, um, social art, social practice, um, community art, dialogue art. And something that I learned over the past months, I guess past year, is that if we are flexible enough with the terms, because the work that we do is so interdisciplinary, we can go to different pockets of spaces 
So like it could be about sustainability, it could be about communities. And if it's about communities or social work, then, you know, it opens up a lot more funding where people understand what social work is. People understand like communities kind of, people understand grassroots, even if grassroots doesn't have that much money or funding. But when you look at social work or therapy, which actually uh, this kind of work does kind of encompass a lot of these different, like varying degrees of these different disciplines. And if we could use the, the art side um, as the, the unique point or the niche to then go into like the social work spaces to get certain funding for it or, you know, other spaces, then I feel like there, there is a possibility there. But what I'm increasingly realized, realizing while being in very non-art spaces is language and vocabulary because people just don't understand when you talk about socially engaged art. People don't understand because they've not experienced it before a lot of times. You know, for them, it's like, right, workshop facilitating a conversation. Like, I don't want to do any more of that. You know, you get every sort of workshop at every event. Um, I don't want to sit down and talk to people. But they've not experienced the kind of conversations we've had that isn't just superficial, you know, that isn't just very transactional. That is something that opens up, you know, something that is really vulnerable, but still maintaining a space that is safe enough for people to be able to express and talk about it and closing it um, in a way that doesn't leave a scar, you know, like closing it properly. And there is so much skill, there is so much practice and there is so much experience that is needed for this kind of work. And it's always a constant learning in progress. And I feel people don't really understand that also because people don't experience it enough. So recently I started this thing, which um, I've been wanting to do since coming back to like for about a year now, but because of COVID, I couldn't really do it until now that things started opening up. So I, I've been trying to connect with my local neighborhood. So I grew up in this area, but I, you know, after six years abroad coming back, I realized, wait a minute, I don't actually know people around. Like the places, it has changed. Like the playgrounds that I grew up with, they don't look the same anymore. There's been so many renovations. The shops are not the same. And even the houses have changed. People have moved in and out. And I was like, right, I, I do this work, but I don't even know my neighborhood that I grew up in. I, I need to start connecting with people and finding out who they are and, and to just connect and then to have an idea of what what makes this place home for them. Like what, what was the history of this place? What connects them to this place? What makes this like their route? And then I had this, um, I, started do, I started doing these participatory art um, interventions, public interventions, which uh, it's my first in Singapore. I've been quite hesitant um, because it takes a bit of courage in a place like Singapore. Like I'm kind of testing boundaries. And it's quite interesting. So I, I talked to this guy and he was telling me um, that, you know, back in the days when people were living in kampongs, which are kind of like villages, there was a lot more interconnectivity, you know, because there wasn't a supermarket or anything like that. So if you needed an egg, if you needed oil, you go to your neighbors and you, and you borrow. And because there is this sense of interdependence, um, you actually form deeper social bonds and connections and, and communities. But nowadays, because we are so self-sufficient and individualistic in a way because of this, the environment that, that, that shaped this, we don't need to, you know, ask for an egg from a neighbor. We can just go on a five, 10 minutes walk and we get to the grocery store. So then this almost takes away the opportunities for us to interact with each other. Even when you go to the park, you, you go there and you do your exercise and, and you move on, you know, like there aren't really spaces for people to open up conversations. And while I stationed there for a couple of hours, like it's quite interesting, the varied expressions that I got, like there was people who just were curious, they stared at me and then some gave like the, what's she doing kind of look. <laughs> And then there were people who were just like smiling and okay. And then there were some like, you know, a couple, like quite few that would stop by when I say hi and, you know, like, what are you doing? This is interesting. And then they start talking with me about it. And everyone has so many stories to tell about this place. And I think what's really wonderful is when, when I start talking to people and then someone else joins in and then suddenly these this group that becomes bigger, they start having conversations that's beyond me. And I think this is really the starting point that seeds like the kind of connection and, and communities and local spaces. And for me, I guess this is place-based um, art, like creative practice, uh, creative place-making. And what I'm, I'm hoping to do is to eventually 
bring these conversations beyond that to become like, you know, what do you think about the climate? What do you think about race? What do you think about our identity? What do you think about living with each other? And to just, you know, open up these spaces where people can question a little bit more. It's almost like conversation zones um, in public spaces where people could come freely in and out to participate. I don't know how far I can go with this or how long, but I feel like there, there is this need, you know, where we are just the way that the way that cities are built and designed you you live in your apartment and that's all you've got you know like even even within an apartment if you are renting a place if you don't have the kind of relationships that you form with your flatmates or put in the time to form those relationships a lot of times you're just in your room and like places like London where I lived there there wasn't even a living room you know your kitchen was so tiny so then you you cook and you go back to your room to eat and then like there's no interaction even in the same vet and in a situation like COVID when you're pretty much isolated from everything else what does this mean in terms of our relationships you know day to day and I guess for our kind of work that that crosses into so many different spaces and disciplines it is actually so much more (laughs) so much more than whatever is on the website or whatever people understand it as because it's relational it's about relationships it's about all these different things that you're activating and the questions that you're seeding and conversations that you're opening up. And it's about, I I would also think a constant sort of reflective inquiry process that is not just within us, but also within everyone else that we're trying to try to open up. And how, I guess, how did, you know, your experiences, live experiences then get to the school of MA and, everything that you're doing because I feel like you found a way to include all that you're questioning in this world um, with your life experiences into this school and you're doing it in a very unconventional way what what do you have some examples that you can give of like the work that you're doing at the school how are you bringing in some of these elements well I think that I mean, originally I was really just interested in getting more women involved in technology, I think. And also getting people to make, uh, I guess, be more um, radical with their choices of what they're creating with technology. Because, I mean, great, you can blink an LED on and off. Like, it didn't seem like interesting enough for me. And I'm like, you know, what matters is really what people do with the technology, not that they're doing anything. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not enough to just play with technology, but like, what do you have to say? And so I started to kind of, I think by the second year of the school, I started to really think about, or try to get people to think about who they are and what they care about and to put that into the work that they're creating. And so, and I think probably from that point, I mean, because it was always about getting people to open up about who they are. And I think I just um, realized that actually, so after you start that conversation that what they should do is to put that into the work that they create. Because, you know, I mean, as a creative human or artist, I think that a lot of times you don't, you know, you wanna make something and you're not even sure what it is. And then you start to make it. And then only after you've started, after you've made it, can you see what you even were thinking, which is quite a fascinating um, experience, I think. But, you know, it could be like, putting this thing together and then it's like oh yeah I mean that's my my childhood right there or like my relationships or like whatever you know it's like it can be very easily then analyzed and so then it's great because it's you're separated from it it's it's its own thing and then and then everybody can have their own interpretation of the thing and you have and you can better understand your own motivation because you know it's like oh I just spent 50 hours making this thing why did it mean so much to me, you know, and then like, and then kind of break it down for yourself. But, but I think anyway, um, having had a complicated childhood, I just knew that wasn't all there was, you know, that that wasn't even the right way. You know, what happened to me was really very wrong, in fact. And, and I wondered how many other people had to experience, you know, really like things they shouldn't have had to. And, and yet here we all are trying to get X degree or trying to work in X field or whatever. And it, so, so like our experiences don't go away just because we have goals to, to work in a certain area or something like that. And so then it was like, okay, well, I, I then 
I, I then kind of believe everybody's got the area that they could stand to use more clarity on for themselves, like kind of like either mental health issues or just, I don't know, in relationships and all these kinds of things. So I, I anyway, I decided that I, I thought it was really important to put that into the work. And so what I'm doing right now, for example, let's say uh, with machine learning, because people are really interested in the topic of machine learning. And, and so we offer classes on machine learning, but in this space of machine learning, we get people to think about what is our human experience, you know, because here we are coming together to talk about the machine experience, but we, do we really even know our own human experience? And yes, we've lived about lived through things, but have we really thought about how and why those things happened and how they've affected us? And so I feel like in a way I'm trying to meet people where they are. They're in a place where technology is fascinating and technology is very necessary and it's invading our uh, homes and workspaces and how can we connect all these things together so that we have like, again, I'm using this holistic word and I never use this holistic word. I have no idea why it's coming out today already for the second time, but I guess in a way it's just like, because I, I, I feel like I want to be a whole human, you know, it's like, and I feel like I have been broken in many different ways and I've been trying to kind of get back to a, a human that I can understand. And I think everybody really wants that secretly, but doesn't know how to go about it. And so I'm trying to help people do that through creativity and new technology and, and all these kinds of things. So this is the experience that I'm creating. I guess if you want to call it my participatory art practice, this is like what I'm doing to bring people in to, to educate ourselves on technology, on, on society, on ourselves, human experiences and all the things. I think it does, it's not necessary to separate those things. And I wish that more people would understand that, you know, and more educational institutions or workplaces would understand that so that we can start to become those whole human beings instead of separating and compartmentalizing our lives because it's appropriate in this setting and this something else is appropriate in another. Hey everyone, this is a long episode, so I split it into two. Go grab a cup of tea, come back and listen to part two and share this episode if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes. This will help Onions Talk reach more people and some episodes might benefit change makers out there on their journey. Part two is a candid conversation on our ideal world and how to build that moving into the future. Also, if you want to learn the importance of understanding your childhood to create personal and social transformation, tune in to part two and follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn if you like to watch this episode on video.